William Edward Joyce, writer, illustrator, and filmmaker. Bill Joyce had an early start to storytelling, having written his first biographical piece for a fourth grade competition entitled Billy's Booger. Fast forward to several years later, Joyce graduated from Southern Methodist University with a degree in film. He went on to write over 50 books, including A Day with Wilbur Robinson, The Leaf Men and the Brave Good Bugs, George Shrinks, Santa Calls, and many more. Joyce is an Oscar winner, six-time Emmy winner, and renowned creative mind. He is co-founder of Moonbot Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, where he has created TV shows, commercials, and films. In 2012, Bill and Moonbot won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short with the fantastic flying books of Mr. Morris Lessmore. Short film, long, long title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> he is responsible for creating Roly Poly Oli, as well as multiple characters in Toy Story and A Bug's Life. He has also created illustrations for the cover of The New Yorker, and his paintings are displayed in art galleries across the country. We are lucky enough to be sitting here at Meadow School of the Arts at SMU, where Joyce's craft was further honed. Please welcome Bill Joyce to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's fun to be here. <laughs> yes, thank you for being here. So our generation is very familiar with uh, so many of your accomplishments, Toy Story, Roly Poly Oli, among others. I'm really curious today to, to hear you talk a little bit about a project or some projects that you were really proud of that, that maybe didn't necessarily get the recognition that you thought that they would. Well, I mean, you never know how these things are going to be accepted in the, once they go out in public. And so <laughs> disappointments. I'm probably disappointed more in the ones that didn't get made. And for everyone that gets made, there's probably five or six that you've gone through and developed and people have spent money on and they just didn't quite get there. Or regimes changed. Meet the Robinsons was at Disney for 16 years. And most of that time it was under its original title, A Day with Wilbur Robinson. It went through five different regime changes. The heads of the studios would leave, and the next guy would go, I don't know if I want to make that movie or not. And so I had to outlast those five regimes for the film to finally get made. And the last second, they changed it from a day with Lowell Robinson to meet the Robinsons. But actually, they, had, they wanted to call it something else that I'm not even going to tell you. That was so, like, inexplicably odd. And, and that's one of the things that can happen. And... And I was like, that is the way, you know it's bad when they, and they call you and go, we have a title that we're really interested in trying out and we think you're going to be really excited. And anytime they tell you that they think you're going to be really excited, it's when you're going to be like, where's the chainsaw so I can kill you guys now. <laughs> I mean, so they came up with this nutty title and I was like, no, I ain't going to, no, no. And they're like well, you know, we can if we want to. And I was like, I don't know, fellas, I, I really wouldn't do that. And, and and I talked at length, and so we came to that compromise. I was disappointed in that title. I wish it had been its original title. The film did really well, but we opened against, oh, my gosh, Blades of Glory. <laughs> <laughs> and we came in number one, and but it took a big hunk out of our box office. And it drafted off of us for the next few weeks that the film came out. We didn't get nominated for an Academy Award that time. And, you know, so that's the kind of thing that you get. 
you get disappointed when a film doesn't succeed as much as you had expected or hoped. And they've all made a lot of money. It's just, and they've made their money back. So that's always been good. I'd hoped that Rise of the Guardians was just going to go ballistic and go crazy. And it made $300 million, and that sounds like a lot of money. But for them, they really wanted $500 million. <laughs> so it, we were nominated for the Golden Globe that year, and I thought we had a shot at, uh, at the Oscars and just didn't quite make it. And so those are the disappointments. But that's not why you do these things. So you do them because they're like you're so passionate about doing that it, it, that you're willing to go years and years and years of trying to get it made and the years and years to make it. I mean, the films are difficult to make. Animated films are very difficult to make. They're incredibly time-consuming and very, very expensive. And so you do it because you want to create something beautiful, that you have a story that you feel so compelled to tell that that's all you want to think about for five or six years. And it isn't all I do think about. I'm always working on like 20 different things, but the focus of your soul and your energy is that film. And, and that's why you do it. It's actually that the movies come out is very anticlimactic and something of an afterthought. And I hardly ever see them afterwards. And because I know what happens, you know, and all I can see are the flaws. I watched our short film that we won the Oscar for last week because it was Oscar week. And I was posting some stuff about it. I hadn't looked at it in a long time. And it was gut wrenching. And because all I could see were things I wished we could have done better or that I knew if we, we could now, that you know, the technology is there for us to make it look a little better. So it's, you know, most of the time I'm done with these things, I leave them behind. And isn't that interesting, right, that you're, you're consistently watching or, or folks are telling you about, you know, your works that are so classic, that are esteemed classics that you haven't watched or, or spent time with since you were working on them? It is kind of, I mean, I hadn't watched a Roly-Poly episode, Roly-Poly Oli episode and. 20 years maybe but when I go to book signings or just go to things people will say wait a minute really poly only and then and what I'm getting now are people in their 20s you know I was just checking into a hotel in Toronto and the desk you know woman at the desk said and you're here for business or pleasure and I said I'm here for business and kind of pleasure I'm here to work on new episodes of a show I did a long time ago. And she goes, oh, what show? And I was like, really, Polioli? And then she goes, oh, my God. And she grabbed everybody <laughs> at the desk and said, he did really, Polioli. And they began to sing to me in the hotel lobby <laughs> at the desk the really, Polioli theme song. You know, that's not how I usually check into a hotel. <laughs> and that was really just, that'll, that'll make your day, you know? Absolutely. So... When we started talking about working on new episodes, I mean, I literally was like, guys, I know that, you know, I came up with every premise. I know all that we did. I don't remember much of what, like, we have to, I can't, we've got to watch them again. And because I kind of forgot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will remind you because I am the biggest fan of Rolly Poly. Oh my gosh, really? Oh, number one fangirl. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That's so sweet. Oh, absolutely. Well, transitioning a little bit, talking a little bit about rejection. All artists at some point face rejection in their career. So curious to learn you know, if you faced rejection and, and how that prepared you for, for what you're doing now. Yeah. I mean, when I was here at SMU, I was submitting stuff to publishers from the time I was a sophomore and different, you know, ideas for children's books or movie stories. And I had... Oh, 
150 rejections, you know, some of them very, very curse and turt and, and some of them <laughs> like, like we didn't even read your stuff, like, so, and don't send it here anymore. And, and that took a lot of like resilience to sort of like not be crushed. But, you know, it's part of what you have to be prepared for as you go out into the world in the arts. You know, you get a law degree and you pass the bar. I mean, you there's it's kind of like you're going to get a job as a lawyer somewhere. You're going to hang your shingle and you're going to practice law. And you get a degree in broadcast film or art or any of those things. And the possibilities are vast. And the possibilities for, for rejection are even more fast. And you will encounter that a lot at the beginning, but you just have to believe in yourself and think, I really understand what it is you want to say, you know. And that's, that's asking a lot, maybe, but that's what you should do while you're in school is start to understand your aesthetic. You know, you're here for four years to soak stuff up. And so, and it's a great place for that there's so much knowledge and wisdom here and so learn everything you can and learn what it is that you love and from the people that are here to guide you your teachers and professors and counselors and everyone get them to tell you more about why did i like this what do you think happened here and what more can i can i can i learn about them or just do that on your own i mean i mean a lot of times you just will and then watch crummy stuff you know watch failures because you can learn as much from a failure as you can from a masterpiece. And because you're going to fail a lot. And that's a lot of what you should try to do while you're in school is do as much as you can as you're forging your aesthetic. And and know when you're, when you're crummy. And don't get discouraged about it. Because, I mean, you know, sports analogies sometimes can sound pretty lame. But they're true. Babe Ruth struck out three times more than he ever hit the ball. I mean... That's just the way that goes. So discouragement is just going to be part of it. Hang on as long as you can and find out what it is you think they don't like, why you're not getting where you're getting, where you need to go, and figure out what it is that makes you want to do this and what the beauty you want to bring to the world. Refine and hone that idea and that, that sense of fire in your belly and try not to let it go out. Great. Really curious about Moonbot Studios being in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to to start that in Shreveport versus on one of the coasts? Well, I'd been traveling so much in my career. And when the kids were little, that was easy. And, you know, we'd spend a year in Los Angeles and summers in Berkeley when I was working at Pixar. Off and on, I spent a lot of years up in New York working with Blue Sky Studios to do robots and uh, Epic. And we, we decided to raise our kids in Shreveport, Louisiana, the city that we'd grown up in. It was, it's a very lovely town. And home is a very strong emotional force for me, and it's a part of all my stories. My characters are always trying to rescue home, recapture home, maintain home, get home. So we had decided, like, if much as we could, we'd like to stay there because we, we know that we'll always travel. But... There was a point where I was like, I'm having to travel for so long and so much, and it's becoming kind of like, I don't feel like I'm around enough. And I want to prove that we can do it anywhere, that we can do movies anywhere. When I'd started working at Pixar and when I started working at Blue Sky, they were both really small. Pixar had about 45 employees when I started working on Toy Story. And they're working out of a kind of a industrial strip mall area in, in, a, in a seedy part of Oakland. 
And you couldn't have been more removed from Hollywood if you wanted to be. Yes, we were in California, but I mean, that's really far. I was, you know, a long, it's, I don't know how many miles it is to Los Angeles from Oakland, but it's far. And then at Blue Sky, they're in, uh, they're in an old dentist's office in Harrison, New York, outside of New York City, right? So, I mean, that's not Los Angeles, okay? That's, that's really removed. And it, it dawned on me, like, it, we don't have to be in the place where we've always thought movies were made. When we were making Roly Poly Oli, I mean, I coordinated everything from Shreveport. The production team was in uh, Toronto. All the animation was done in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. We were never in the same place at any one given time. I'd be up in Toronto frequently and sometimes people from Toronto everybody would come down to Shreveport for a while it doesn't matter where you are it's just do you have the tools to to send your creativity and get the job done you know a production designed three movies from afar going in periodically but checking in every day so that made me realize I think we can do that here we can just what happens if we bring it all here and we do it here. I want to prove that. There was a big move around then. This is like this was almost ten years ago to bring film production to Willie, to Louisiana, and they actually modeled the the um, tax incentives that the legislature of Louisiana put in place after the the Canadian tax breaks that I got from making Roly Polioli there, and and it worked. Production started coming in to Louisiana, so I was like, let's take advantage of that. Let's see. If we can make this thing work for animation, if movies are coming in like crazy, what about animation? And so with a few friends from Animation Land, you know, we went and raised some money and from local investors, enough for us to establish the studio and make our first short film, uh, The Fantastic Flying Books of Morris Lesmore. And we had to go recruit and bring people in. We went to the... Uh, the Ringling School of Design in Sarasota, Florida, and where one of my partners had graduated. And we got almost every one of the blue chip kids that we wanted to get. And a lot of them, you know, wanted to go. They thought, oh, they want to go to Pixar. They wanted to go to DreamWorks. They wanted to go to all those places, those big, glamorous places. We came in, and we showed them what we were working on. We showed them our theories of production. We told them, you won't be a little cog and a big machine. We're going to ask you to do lots of different things. You're not going to be pigeonholed into something small and specific. And many of them were very excited about that idea. They had been taught that they're going to be small cogs in a big machine. And to tailor their education and all their interviews and presentations towards that idea. When we came in and said we wanted this, a lot of them the ones that were really talented, the ones that wanted to take risks, said, count me in. And it was an incredible affirmation about what we were trying to do, how we were presenting ourselves, if people would believe in us and have them actually do it. These kids took that chance, like, uh, no, Pixar, I'm going to Shreveport. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they did. And turned out to be what my theory had been that if you get the right people together you can you can do what you need to do in a film anywhere 
And it was very much like, let's put on a show. Like it was a Mickey Rooney, you know, Andy Hardy, Judy Garland, let's get dad's barn and, you know, we'll build some sets and we're going to go to Broadway kind of thing. And, but it worked. And besides how beautifully it worked and how much fun it was to take these kids and say, no one's ever tried this before and you're just out of college, but I bet you can figure something out, giving, empowering them that way. And it lit them on fire. You know, they just blossomed and they became warriors like overnight. And it was a spectacular thing to watch. And so when we did win, <laughs> yeah, when you come home to a small town where you live and you've won an Oscar, they do things that it really became like a Frank Capra movie. You know, we got off the airplane and there are all these people with signs, you know, and then there, they had a ticker tape parade for us in downtown Shreveport where most of the downtown buildings are three to four stories tall. It's hard to do that. So they had confetti cannons, but the whole town came out. It was the first parade in downtown Shreveport since, um, the end of world war two. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And then they gave us the keys to the city and everybody sang for, he's a jolly good fellow for us. And that was just, that was really remarkable. My life became like a Frank Capra movie. Love that. That's fantastic. Well, you know, if there's one lesson from it, it is, it can happen anywhere now. Films can happen anywhere. And you talk about these students becoming, we said, warriors overnight. So I'm curious for you, I know you got a very early start. You know, you were writing in the fourth grade on. Mm -hmm. So curious where that imagination came from, if you, if you can describe it. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it was a house full, a very eccentric household of, of Southern Gothic goofballs. And everybody had gone off to, I was the youngest. And so one of my cousins had gone to Juilliard and was a, a concert pianist. And another one was an opera singer. And my sister was an artist. My other sister was a photojournalist. Another uh, cousin was, was an actor. And so there's, and so there's all this music, there's all that stuff in the air, right? And so I'm like a little kid soaking it up. And our parents were the countryest people imaginable. And then you sat around going, what? How did this strange i mean we're farmers you know like and how did this happen but they encouraged us they're like they're doing something they love that was not a luxury that they had had so they thought it was awesome and they 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 protected that for us they made it possible for us they never once said go be a doctor or a lawyer it was follow this muse it's important and so I think really there was a moment, if there's going to be a moment where it was like, I'm going to do this for a living. It was the day there was, I had this crazy week when I was five and I saw the Wizard of Oz and I saw Shane and I saw Robin Hood for the first time all in this, they had this series of the old downtown theater and these movies melted my brain. And, I, and King Kong. I'm sorry, I left out King Kong. And, and I didn't make a differentiation between fact and fiction when I was watching these. And I was like, this is real. This has to be real. And I remember sitting in the theater, and I didn't even know what a movie theater was. This is the first time I went to one. 
And I'm like, okay, what's with all these chairs facing this wall? And my cousin was like, well, this, it's, it's, there's going to be a story on that wall in a minute. I'm like, well, how? And she's like, this light is going to beam in, and then the story will be there. I mean, that sounds pretty magic. I mean, that is, a, that is an accurate description of what occurs, but for a five-year-old, that sounds enchanted, and it is enchanted. And so as the screen, you know, exploded and Dorothy was running through Kansas and then out walking into Munchkin land, I was, it melted my brain. There was just like my DNA changed. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be where that stuff happened. And so I asked my parents, like, what just, how do I get to do that? Where, how do I get there? And they're like, I don't know. They're like, people make those things up. And I'm like, people like who? And they're like, they're called maker uppers. <laughs> okay. I want to be a maker upper. Do we know any of these maker uppers? No, we don't. But your some of your cousins are going to school and I think they're going to be maker uppers. And I'm like, so there's maker upper school. And they go, well, they call it different things. And I'm like, well, that's where I want to go. And that's what I want to be. And if that's a, if that's a job, I want it. So that's how it started. Fantastic. And with this whole concept of, of maker-uppers, right, how do you think that that, that skill set in you is honed? Can it be taught? If so, how? Is it something that, you know, you think everyone is born with? Can you describe that a little bit? What I can tell you that I was lucky to be born with is, like, mental receptors that take this stuff in so intensely that it becomes as important to me as breathing, all right? So if I'm hearing a piece of music, and since I was around music a lot then, when I would hear Debussy or I would hear Rachmaninoff when I was a little kid, those sounds had an effect on me that was unusual in its intensity. The same thing with movies and the same thing with artwork and the same thing with dance and the same thing with theater. And I would get just goosebumps I would just believe in it completely and it would give me the emotions it was supposed to right you're worried about Dorothy you're so worried about Dorothy from the first shot she's running down the road is she following us she's with her dog you know as a little kid like this is a little girl in trouble she's worried and then you find out in quick succession that she there's no parents around it's Uncle Henry and Auntie M that is so sad you know, no one's really listening to her. And you're like, oh, no. I mean, you're under her skin. And I got, I mean, that's the way it was. I'm lucky in that I feel those things that way. That leads you, if that's if it comes everything you think about and that you prefer that reality to actual reality. I mean, movie reality is so much better than walking down the street sometimes. And you just soak it up. And for the longest time, I didn't understand that I was trying to figure out how they did what they do until I really started to sit down and write. And I'm like, gee, what do you, how do you, how do you do this? How do you make a story? And, you know, it was simple. Just watch a film or a play or a television show and see what happens. How do they get you to want to know what happens next? That's really all a, a story is. Wanting to know what happens next, caring about someone or something happening to someone and seeing how it plays out. And so oftentimes it is something very simple. It will gain complexity 
but Dorothy just wanted to get home. You know, entire regions of a, of a fantastic world went to war to try to deal with her being there and having a pair of ruby slippers whose, whose powers are never explained. <laughs> but she wants to get home, and that's what you care about. In Casablanca, it's kind of the same thing. Ingrid Bergman wants to get home, or she wants to get away from danger. And Humphrey Bogart would love to be able to do that with her. And there's an opportunity now for them after a long time of being separated and complications ensue. It's, so once you figure out what the simplicity of a story, if it is a storyteller you want to become, once you figure out who is in need and what it is they need, then you can start to build all the complications and all the beauty and all the different things that you want to try to express onto that simple thread. So that's what I did. I figured out, I figured that out. And I had people, and I asked people, and there was a lot of people at this school that helped me understand it. I can say this to, to someone all day long. I can say this to a young person. I can say this to a student all day long. And sometimes it doesn't soak in. It, it's only until they try to do it themselves that they realize, oh, wait a second. There is a trick to this. It is what they were talking about. And in my early writing when I was here, and this is where I was, I mean, I learned to write. Taking journalism was a, was a very, very important thing for me to do here because I learned how to tell a story succinctly and well. If there's anything that, that journalism teaches you, everything that happens is a story. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there's a way to convey that message, and you want to convey it in as clear and quick a manner as possible. And that helps a ton in learning to tell a story for film or for theater. So there you go. Don't bury the lead. <laughs> <laughs> Great. No, absolutely. So storytellers, what advice would you give to either current students or um, younger students, and even in elementary school as you started? Um, what, what advice would you give to them uh, as they are embarking on their storytelling career? Know what you like. Analyze it so that you understand why. What did it do that moved you? And then look at what you don't like and analyze why and figure out how not to do those things. But keep yourself open to every kind of inspiration. A lot of times my stories come out of little tiny moments of just happy accidents that happen right in front of my very eyes. Walking down the street, New Orleans is one of the greatest towns in the world to get a story in, a, in every block you walk. And <laughs> I saw this, this woman in the middle of the day, very intoxicated, well-dressed, nice, you know, lead-dressed woman. And she apparently was waiting for an Uber. And, I mean, we were just walking there. I was like, man, I don't know if that lady's going to make it, man. Those high heels are not working well for her right now. And... So she walks over to this car that's at the stoplight and starts pulling on the door. And and it's not opening. And there's an old woman driving it. And she's looking kind of frightened. And a guy passing by sees this. And he intercedes. And he says, it ain't your Uber lady. 
And she looked at me and was, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for my Uber. This ain't your Uber, lady. <laughs> and she's like, what? He goes, it ain't your Uber today. It ain't going to be your Uber tomorrow. And it ain't ever going to be your Uber. Go on, lady. Leave this poor lady alone. You're scaring her to death. Just stand back over there, and I'll help you find your Uber. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to stick around. I wanted to know these people's stories, all right? That was an amazing bit of drama that just happened where you're walking down the street. It's everywhere. Your inspiration is everywhere. I troll through magazines and websites and Instagram and I'm constantly on the look for something that just gets me going. And I never know what it's going to be. And it may be something that pops in my head unbidden. But oftentimes it comes from something that I just happened upon or something I read about or a single phrase that someone said about creating. It's just keep, keep searching, keep soaking that stuff up. It's out there. People have been doing cool stuff for so long, and you're never going to find all of it. And there's tons of stuff to be inspired by. Is there any particular medium that you're really into right now? Is there any particular filmmaker or author, writer, um, any books that you're reading right now for inspiration? What's inspiring me the most right now is, is oddly enough, that the, the language of film is evolving, and it always has. But it's evolving in a very in a kind of a an interesting clip you know like cameras digital cameras film the combination of digital and film the ease of carrying a camera the different ways you can carry a camera now and easily and these are changing the way like if you watch uh, Handmaid's Tale or you watch uh, Ozark you watch these shows they're as beautiful as any film and sometimes their choices and the way they're able to use the camera are are innovative in ways that film is catching up with. And so when I see a movie like this year's The Joker, or or even something that seems as traditional as as um, Little Women, the way that those filmmakers use the camera, the way that they're setting up shots, is different, and it's vibrant and it's beautiful, and it's very alive, and it looks like no other time in the movies. You know, you can look at each era and go, this looks like a 50s movie, this looks like a 1940s movie, this looks like a 1930s movie. The movies of now are going to have, it'll be harder to peg, but a lot of them you'll go, okay, that was, that was 2020. That's when things really started looking just so lush. And usually sometimes using camera equipment that's, that's anybody can get, and that's exciting. And so that's what's inspiring, right? Right, inspiring me, right? Inspiring me. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Inspiring me right now is beautiful camera work. Things you can make things look absolutely beautiful for a lot less money, and that frees up a lot of people to do some really great work. Any other any other thoughts that you have, or anything that you want to share? So much of what my stories come from my life, come from the things that happened to me. And I don't realize it at the time. I don't realize when I'm writing something that I'm actually dealing with whatever's happening right then. And life is full of change. That's the thing that's going to be a surprise, I think, to a lot of graduates. And people try to tell me this. Nothing's going to turn out the way you think it's going to. And your career is not going to go in like this planned trajectory. And things are just going to happen. And so be open to that. Don't be afraid of that. 
I got out of school. I was really lucky, and then I got you know, a book contract a couple of weeks after I got out of school. And that kind of was part of my plan, to do books that people would want to make into movies, and that would be my way into the movie business. Now, I thought it would happen in three years. You know, it took 10, and, and even then, it took directions I hadn't planned on. I didn't want to do animation. I'd studied it when I was here at SMU. It's too hard. <laughs> it's hard to make a movie that way. But that's when John Lasseter called me and asked me to work on Toy Story. I was like, this looks cool. I want to try. And that's how I started being in animation. And so I, I don't want to stay there all the time. And I don't. But I never thought I'd do a television show. And yet I did. I never thought a lot of the things that have happened would happen. I never thought I'd do a short film and win an Oscar for it. None of this stuff was in the plan. And sometimes it's, it happens to you unbidden, like people just called up and said, we want you to do a television show. Pe people will go, will you design this movie? I'd never designed a movie before, but they like my drawings. I mean, it's, there's all these little things that happen. And you'll sit there and you'll go, oh, my God, I want to do this so bad. I want it to go this way. And, so, and it, don't be freaked out if it doesn't go the way you thought it would. Because something, not always, but there'll be surprises along the way. So be willing to go with those surprises. Great. And the Oscar-winning moment, I do want to ask, like, do you remember what that feeling was like, <laughs> and can you describe it? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, yes. <laughs> A friend of mine who'd won, won, told me, just when they get to your category, when they start getting close to your category, your brain's going to start doing some weird stuff. And I can't explain it any further than that. And time, all these things are going to start getting weird. And so I was sitting there, and they told us, you know, your, your category is coming up. And they got to short films, and they did uh, live-action short films first, and they did uh, feature animation, and then they were going to do And they were starting to get to us. And my hearing went away I wasn't hearing anything anymore it's just whoa, whoa. and all I could do was look at the hair of the guy in front of me but he was nominated in the same category and he was it was a Pixar short that he had done and I thought if we were going to lose it would be to the Pixar guy so since I knew I couldn't hear anymore I just kept looking at the back of his head and if it if it stood up then I know that we had lost and then right when they tore the envelope I heard that and it's quiet in there for every, every one of those, those moments. The place goes just silent. It's 5,000 people, and you, no one's breathing when they tear the envelope. And I was like, oh, I can hear again. And then I heard the fan. And I'm like, well, nothing else nominated starts that way. <laughs> so I stood up, and then everybody was looking at us. And then, and then it was as though... I, my molecular structure changed. I was made of atoms of bliss. And I felt like, like I was no longer a solid force, that I was just this little cloud of helium-like joy drifting towards the, the, uh, the stage. And George Clooney was right there, and Sandra Bullock. We had sat with them at the Oscar luncheon. They were so much fun and so nice, and they... They smiled at us, and and 
<laughs> we had our speeches in our head, right? They told us, write your speech before. Don't have a piece of paper. Just act like you made it up on the spot and make it funny, heartfelt, and, um, and touching. And, and you have 40 seconds. And you'll see a timer, you know. And at the end of that 40 seconds, unless you're killing it, we cut you off. And so we stand up and we, I say the first sentence of our speech because I was going to say a thing and then Brandon was going to say a thing. We go back and forth. And I said the first sentence and then Brandon just repeated it. And I realized he is, he is lost. And then I went, and I don't know what to do next. And then I saw um, <laughs> um, George Clooney lean over and go, what is up with their suits? Our suits have been made by Dickies of Fort Worth, all right? <laughs> and the lining of them were, was danger orange. We had to use Dickies. So we were interviewed by Vanity Fair. This, this was hysterical. Who are you wearing to the Oscars? They asked two guys, two animators, all right? <laughs> so, as a joke, we said Dickies of Fort Worth, like as a joke, and they printed it. And the next day, the president of Dickies called and said, I would love to dress you guys, and I'm going to send a tailor in. I'm like, that is awesome. So he sends this guy in, and we had to use Dickies fabric. So we had the black, like, road asbestos, you know, tuxedo. And, but they had little, like, they're little, and they had, you know, they had the satin line. They had the whole thing, little pals. I mean, it looked like it was, it's the best tux I've ever had. But it has all these pockets for little tools and stuff. <laughs> and we had to pick the lining, and we picked the lining called Danger Orange. That's the fabric they use for the flags. <laughs> They're going to wave you down and slide down for it. So our, the lining of our coats, you know, was so orange that the light beaming down, is, it was making our white shirts just sort of do this, like, neon glow. So we heard <laughs> George Clooney go, What's up with their shirts? And we looked, and that's when we just totally lost. Like we had, we didn't know what we had said until we got home, and we actually did okay. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people were coming up to us afterwards, going, "That was one of the best speeches." And we're like, I "Have no idea what we said." Thank you, thank you very much. So I remember everything but what we said. <laughs> it was. I highly recommend winning an Oscar. <laughs> It's really fun. I love that. I love that. Well, that sounds like it could be a whole story in and of itself. The atoms of bliss there have its own personality. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's one of those things you just need to say and leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> you talked a lot about lessons learned here at Meadows. Mm -hmm. Was there any specific advice that you were given as a student that you think prepared you specifically or any impact that a professor or, or a faculty member had on you here? There's so many examples of it. I mean, we, we'd have to, this podcast would have to be like 11 hours long. <laughs> and I mean, almost every day had some epiphany, right? And a lot of times I wonder, I wonder if professors know, they probably do, how many times the things they say have a profound impact. For me to sit down and give you an example, let me think. Yes, Gary Marshall came and was a guest lecturer for about two weeks, my senior year. Gary Marshall is the father of Penny Marshall from Laverne and Shirley. He created Laverne and Shirley. He, he created Happy Days, two very popular television shows of the 70s and early 80s. And then he began to direct motion pictures. He did um, Pretty Woman and a number of other very successful films. And he was a great guy to sit down and talk to because he'd been in the trenches. He knew how to get a show from idea to fruition and then have it be a success and then learn how to guide that success and learn how to keep it from eroding. And he said, basically, you're going to get to Hollywood and you're going to be a waiter for a while or a runner or park cars or something like that. 
you're going to have a tough time at the beginning. And that's just the way it is. It's not like you're going to get out of school and somebody's going to say, hey, will you direct this? Or hey, will you write this? Or hey, will you be the director of photography on this? I mean, you don't have the chops yet and the experience yet to get in that position. But it will, in time, you know, if you keep hanging in there, you're going to meet somebody that's going to believe in you. That's the thing. It doesn't matter how much talent you have. It does to a degree. But you're going to need people that recognize that and believe in you along the way. And when they believe in you, then they take a risk for you. They go, I think this person has what it takes to do this. And when they do that, it's, it's an act of courage on their part. They are trusting that you, they're right. They have a feeling about you. And people listen to that. And so once that happens, you know, bring your A game because that's one of the most important things that can happen as you go along is finding someone that believes in you. I found a lot of people here that believed in me from the time I was a freshman. It's so important. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being here with us today. Really appreciate it and hope you enjoy the rest of your time here in Dallas. <laughs> Always have fun here. It's a great town. It's a great school. It's very nostalgic to come back. It's changed a lot, but in many, many ways, it's still the same. It's a great place. Agreed. Well, thank you again. Thank you.